Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limudcast. I'm Tamara Libicki. In today's episode, I interview David Singer. David's Jewish journey led from performing in plays about Jewish values as a kid to the role of National Director of Limud North America. Throughout, he has thought about what motivates connection between Jews. And we believe intrinsic to our work that the Jewish people's strength has been our capacity to share a joint fate. The Limud slogan is, wherever you find yourself, Limud will take you one step further on your Jewish journey. So I was wondering if we could start out our conversation by you telling us a little bit about your specific Jewish journey, maybe your upbringing, your training, how your identity or your community has evolved as you've grown up and becoming an adult, moved around the country. If you could just give us a little bit of a background of your Jewish journey. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so my Jewish journey has taken me to many different places. It all started actually for me. My synagogue growing up had a theater program and the director of the theater program created Jewish rock operas that we performed on an annual basis in the main professional theater in downtown San Diego. The program was called Showbiz, Biz, B-I-S, Beth Israel Students. I don't think I was ever particularly gifted with stagecraft, but these shows were performances in which Jewish values and stories came to life on stage in a really dramatic effect. The program had over 150 kids in it, and we would study together and practice together for an entire year leading up to our performances around uh, Purim time every March. It was on this stage that I witnessed the power of Jewish life, Jewish ideas, and Jewish ethics coming to life, right? Like I lived the Exodus. I lived the story of Noah, the story of Esther. I lived values like tikkun olam, like gossip issues, lashon hara. And for me, it was this really transformative experience of seeing Jewish alive, really, and, and transforming people. And while theater was never going to be my forte, that really inspired me, and I think transformed me as I look back. So I went to college, enrolled in UC Berkeley in the School of Architecture, because all of my life I wanted to be an architect. I realized in my first week of studio classes there that I actually hate drawing. So that profession was uh, doomed from the start. But ultimately, what I came to figure out is that I actually do like building. It's just building something different than steel and concrete. I like building Jewish community. I like building up the Jewish people. And I am deeply transformed and inspired by the opportunity to help the Jewish people progress forward through history. So in college, my engagement with Jewish was through Hillel, which really inspired me, empowered me to feel like I can make a difference um, with the Jewish community. I grew up in a deeply, deeply reform household, and so started my rabbinic journey after college in, in reform rabbinical school, and, and ultimately found my way into the conservative movement, where I, I studied at the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies in Los Angeles. And out in the rabbinate, I started working 
at a congregation in Dallas, Texas, where I had the privilege of not just working on the pulpit and serving community in a traditional rabbinic sense, but the bulk of my work was actually building community for young adults in urban Dallas, building essentially a startup shul for young people, which in the heart of Texas, within two years, we'd engaged over 2,000 young adults in our programs, which essentially took the synagogue out of the synagogue. And that experience was deeply inspiring uh, in, in terms of my work moving forward, right? The capacity for organizations to think bold, to think big, to not accept what is, but be inspired by what can be. That vision really is what has taken me to each of my major engagements professionally. Um, and it's what brings me to Limud North America, right? We're in a time of extraordinary opportunity for the Limud movement here on this continent. In 15 years, 24 communities have sprouted up organically with almost no paid professionals and are now working with almost 7,000 people each year. And that's remarkable, right? The small amount of input that has led to that transformative impact it can't be overstated. But what we also think is that with sufficient uh, national support in terms of professional leadership, in terms of organizing and leadership development for our local communities, investments in sustainability and best practice sharing, Right. What we can actually do is grow Limud from a movement that is transforming the lives of 7,000 people to a movement that is actually transforming the entire Jewish community, right? Because there are thousands of more people who love what we do. We gather Jews to learn, and we gather them to learn across differences, across backgrounds and chasms that divide them, to talk with each other, because people do not talk enough with each other today, Jews as much as anyone else. And so I am just so excited to be here and part of this movement at this really exciting time as we grow our national hub and leverage it to support each of our local communities like Seattle and dozens of others. Could you tell us a little bit about how you were offered the job, how you decided to accept the job? Where did your involvement in Limud begin? My involvement with Limud began 10 years ago in New York, actually, when I first learned about Limud New York and thought it was pretty much the coolest thing I've ever heard of. I attended for two years while living there, including, I believe, in 2008 or seven, which was the year of the frozen Limud, which is epic in, in the lore of Limud when the, uh, the heaters went out in the coldest weekend of the year for this godforsaken conference and up in the Catskills. And we all spent Shabbat inside, still in parkas and drinking hot tea. For me, Limud, New York, and that experience, it was, the learning was fantastic. The gathering, inspiring, the opportunity to uh, come together like that was awesome. But what was really cutting edge for me about that experience was that it seemed like it was ultimately the convening place for the most pressing and interesting Jewish ideas today. That speakers from organizations and backgrounds across the gamut were coming really to pitch their ideas of what Jewish can be. And that was deeply inspiring. And I ultimately loved attending. Uh, I was a Hill director for the last uh, four plus years in San Diego at UC San Diego. And I was starting to think of what my next steps would be. And I came across an article in eJewish Philanthropy explaining the vision for Limud North America. And what excited me about the opportunity was not just that the work is great and the organization wonderful and its impact transformative for our participants and our constituencies, but I really thrive in, uh, in a startup mode. And what Limud North America needed right now, because I'm our first professional and 
our first of hopefully many as we grow capacity, was someone who not just cared about lean mood and cared about the vision, but was going to be able to actually develop a plan for scaling and expanding the infrastructure that makes up our office information. Um, and that's an extraordinarily exciting place for me professionally. I knew that this was the job for me if I would be so privileged as to be offered it from the second I read that article, because in particular, I was deeply inspired by the audacious bravery and guts of my board to be willing to articulate something like this. I mean, I mean, like, let's just be honest. It's, it's not often that a group of lay leaders in an organizational framework that really has already been developed is able to come together and actually think so boldly and say, what if, right? What if this, the mood thing, which is doing just fine. What if, what if we took it not just to the next level, but like to the end level and what would be necessary to do that? What office, what infrastructure, what support would, we, would be required? It's not going to be easy work, right? We've got a lot of money to raise and we've got a whole movement of people from Seattle to Boca and from Los Angeles up to Quebec that need our leadership that need our support and that frankly, we need to sell ourselves to, right? I don't take for granted that the Limud movement is a movement yet because we're only a movement so far as our participants and our leaders opt to be part of that movement. So we've got some selling of ourselves to do, not of the Limud idea, but, but what it means to be part of an interconnected movement. It's tough work, but it's, it's so exciting and it's so fun. And just having been here for only three months now, and been able to visit some of our communities. I was privileged to, to join Limud Atlanta in Southeast at their Limud Fest last month. We're doing amazing work. And it's such a privilege to be able to support it and help each of our communities to think through how we can do it even better and what we need in order to get there. So just want to go back to your first Limud experience, the frozen Limud, is that what you called it? Yes, um, frozen Limud. <laughs> and you said that you were really inspired there because you thought that people were bringing to Limud the really pressing issues of modern Judaism. So I was wondering if you can remember any of the particular sessions you went to, or if you know you had discussions over lunch, or what were the specific contexts and what were the specific issues that you encountered there? That is a great question. I mean, this was a decade ago. Gosh, I feel so old. And I don't know that I remember some of the specifics, but what I do know is 2007, 2008, right around then, this is when there were many new Jewish organizations really popping up in New York that would come to have transformative impacts on the Jewish community there. And in many ways, Limud New York was one of the testing grounds where they were starting to teach some of their ideas and grow constituencies. If I recall, right, Hadar had a very large presence there at the time. And they were just beginning to found their uh, yeshiva and, and the minion had been been around for a few years then and was wildly successful. And the mood New York became a testing ground for them propelling their ideas. The mood became the platform for some of the most avant-garde Jewish ideas that were being tested in the community to come together and reach a wider audience and beta test as this is possible. And this is not unique to any Limud. This is really the backbone of what Limud is. The, the other avant-garde piece was being in a room in a space where I was forced to interact with Jews who I would never interact with. I'm reminded now of the story that our co-chair, Sivi Twersky, tells of her Limud moment, 
when she was first really transformed by everything we build, when she found herself davening with a Jew from such a remarkably different background as she. And she took for granted that they were very similar until they connected a second time at, at a session. And Sivi realized this is a person who I have, not just this person, but this is a person whose type I have never encountered and whose type I had written off and, and whose type I never would learn from. And Limud providing me not the opportunity actually forced me to come together with this person and learn from her. Sivi tells this story and is brought to tears and it's really in- inspiring to listen to, but I know that that's the experience of, of so many of our participants, right? That Limud gives them the opportunity, not just to learn, but to learn from and with people who they never engage with because they come from such different places, even though we're all part of one Jewish family. So have you ever taught a session at Limud? I have. The first session I ever taught at Limud, I was really inspired by the story of the Turkey Prince. It's a story taught by uh, Rabbi Nathman of Bratislav. The story of the Turkey Prince is a story of a turkey, uh, sorry, excuse me, a prince who went mad. And he went mad because he thought he was a turkey. And he would sit every day underneath the table in the castle eating scraps naked like a turkey. And his father, the king, brought in every magician and every doctor to fix him. And none could. Until finally he brings in the the wise man. And the wise man says, I will fix your son. And so the wise man begins to undress himself and get down onto the ground underneath the table with the turkey prince and start to eat scraps. And the turkey prince looks at the wise man and says, what are you doing? And the wise man says, I'm a turkey and I am eating like one, just like you. And the prince says, okay. And the wise man goes on. And after a few minutes, the wise man leaves from underneath the table. And the turkey prince says to the wise man, what are you doing? You're a turkey. Why are you leaving the table? And the wise man says, you know, I'm a turkey, but turkeys can also be out from under the table. Do you want to join me? The turkey prince says, okay, and a few more minutes pass, and the, the wise man puts on some clothing. And the turkey prince says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm a turkey as well, but I like to wear clothing. Do you want to join me? And so on and so forth, until finally what happens is this turkey prince is out from under the table and wearing clothes and able to be the turkey that he knows himself to be, but also interact in the world. And thus is the story Rabbi Nachman Abraslav tells of the turkey prince and how he was cured. And I was inspired by the story um, because I think it's one of deep understanding of empathy. And in particular, at the time, I was um, working as a chaplain in a uh, chaplaincy internship for clergy and moved by what it meant to get down under the table naked with someone in their most difficult hour. And how often we try to fix people who are acting like the turkeys they know themselves to be by changing them rather than giving them permission to be who they want to be and also find a way to be that person within society. And I I always found that like a deeply inspiring vision for what Jewish community can be. Are we trying to mold people to stop being turkeys? Or are we going to empower them to be turkeys because we're all turkeys in some sort of way? Are we going to empower them to be turkeys and to live a life of Jewish meaning as the turkey that they are? That's, I think, the wisdom of the wise man. And that's what I taught at Limud New York. And for me, that was also really emblematic of the Limud New York experience that I was enjoying. So I'm actually, I'm considering teaching that again, 10 years later uh, at some upcoming Limuds. But the big piece that I'll be teaching in the coming months at different Limud sessions that I'm able to attend or Limud conferences and programs that I'm able to attend is about heresy and the awesome power of being a heretic. So 
That sounds very interesting. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it is. Yeah, I would love to come to that session. You touched on the idea of Jewish community being able to welcome all kinds of different people, but you also, you know, you were talking about earlier with the power of Limud is that there are different Jewish communities that don't even want to interact with the other Jewish community. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's something that a lot of people are concerned with, the divisions within Judaism. And I was wondering if you could just talk about what you perceive people's worries to be when people worry about different communities not interacting with each other, not wanting to hear each other, and how you have seen Limud overcome those divides. I think the worry is something deeper than even just about the Jewish community. I think the worry is ultimately at the center of some of the deepest and darkest struggles that our country, that society in general are facing today. We are siloed and divided and social media only makes things worse because we hear and listen to people that we agree with. And so it's, it's no surprise to me that we experience that in the Jewish community. But ultimately, I think at the crux of, of what inspires our determination to fight that trend is our belief in the Jewish people. There aren't Jewish peoples, there's the Jewish people. And we believe intrinsic to our work that the Jewish people's strength has been our capacity to share a joint fate. And if we can't talk to each other, then that actually deeply puts in peril our capacity to build together and grow together and thrive together. Now, I think intrinsic to the Limud model is one value, and that is curiosity. And we try to embed curiosity as the bedrock of all of our programs because we have seen, we've shown, and we believe fervently that curiosity has the power to inspire individuals as their own individuals, but also help them build a vibrant future for the Jewish people. And curiosity is what brings them together, brings us into community and allows us to learn from and with each other. Um, and that has the power to change worlds and change the Jewish future. So you mentioned social media, which um, reminded me of another thing that I've heard people who are very enthusiastic about Limud talk about, which is combating kind of a modern loneliness. I think there's a phenomenon now that it's easy to separate oneself from the community because you can get everything you need online. You know, not what your soul needs, but what your body needs. You can get it online, and sometimes that leads people to kind of separate themselves, and there's a loneliness that accompanies that. So is that something that you've thought about, and is that something that you're hoping to address with the community building you want to do? It is something I've thought about a lot for a few reasons. In particular, in my former capacity as a Hillel director, kids today on a college campus epitomize and accentuate this problem on a level that we've never seen before. That we, We've somehow built a society that is more connected than ever before and more lonely. And that paradox is not what we expected, right? We all thought that if we could just instant message more, I, I don't know how old you are, but I came of age at the time of AOL Instant Messenger. And like at the time, the belief was, gosh, if we could just all have wittier screen names and spend more time with away messages and, and then 
IMing our friends, you know, every afternoon, we'd be more connected and we are more connected, but we mistakenly believe that connection and loneliness were mutually exclusive, but they're not right. So I'm talking to you right now and we're connected, but I'm sitting in a wooden phone booth that we work. I'm literally boxed away from humanity. So if I really wanted to ponder it and then like go with the emotions, I, I could probably feel pretty freaking lonely right now. I mean, I'm not like, don't worry about me. I'm fine. But the experience, like I'm totally alone. I'm, I'm literally, I'm sitting here in a wooden box. How is this all that different from the casket in which I will be buried? Loneliness is not cured by connection. It's cured by physical presence and empathy. And that is something that happens when we learn together. So that's why we bring Jews together to learn. We gather Jewish community to learn. That's what Limud does. And we do it not because we're trying to cure loneliness, but because loneliness ends up being toxic to Jewish community. Right? We don't do Jewish by ourselves. We do Jewish as a community. In whatever capacity we think doing Jewish means, and it's different for so many people, it's different for me at 10 a.m. and 10.32 a.m. Like It's an evolving thing, but it never just happens by yourself. Jews don't make hermits very well. Other religious traditions may. We don't. I think it's crucial that in order to address this phenomenon of loneliness, to address this phenomenon of isolation, we bring Jews together. And it's not a coincidence that our tradition teaches us that when two Jews learn together, God's presence dwells among them. We literally create divinity through that coming together. Kind of connected to that. I've been thinking about how, you know, in Seattle, we have a, a lot of people excited about Limud, and it's been really awesome. We are on our coming up on our third year, and we've just gotten so much wonderful feedback that people are so excited, and when they attend, they just feel like they've never felt such a broad spectrum of the community coming together before, and it's just so exciting to learn with everyone, and it's wonderful to hear, but it makes me think, you know, it's a day and a half every year. And my question is, what's happening for the other 364 days of the year? Like, how do you see that excitement and that positivity that occurs inside the festival causing other positive things to happen throughout the community throughout the year? Great question. And that's really at the forefront of what we're thinking of and about here in our national office. I don't want to underestimate and I don't want to undervalue the power of immersive experiences to change people's lives. We should never apologize for the fact that our hallmark programs take place over one to three, maybe four days in a year. Because many of us, the course of our lives have been transformed by one day experiences or one week experiences. I mean, think about it. The, the immersive trips to Israel that we spend millions, if not billions of dollars on for people to take, then they'll go once over 10 days, but their life we know is changed forever. Okay. I, I want us to remember that each Lean Mood Festival has the power to be that same immersive and transformative experience, but we are not doing our best work if we're also not giving our participants the power and the capacity, the tools, we're not empowering them to continue in their Limud the other 361 days of the year. 
So that is something that we are thinking about deeply here in my office and trying to think through what will it mean? What do we need to give and what do we need to do to support each of our local communities in order to offer that to our participants and in order to cultivate that framework for our participants? That's what it will mean to not just have a network that provides this platform for Jewish community and learning, but actually be building a movement of thousands of people who are engaged, ongoing, in gathering and learning and elevating curiosity as a hallmark Jewish value. I don't have the answer yet, but it's a big piece that we're going to be addressing in the years ahead, because that is ultimately how we can take the, the impact we're making to a dramatically larger level. So you said that your previous job was with Hillel, and I know definitely our early mood in Seattle, but I'm sure other early moods as well have an ongoing question, how do we engage younger people? So I assume you're actually coming from a place of a whole lot of experience to answer that question. So what is your idea of getting younger people, high schoolers, college students, after college involved and excited about joining in with the broader community of Limud? Okay, here's the dirty secret about engaging young people, but actually it's the dirty secret about engaging anyone. People don't want to be gotten excited and gotten engaged. People want to be inspired and they will involve themselves in compelling opportunities that are either fun or transformative or moving or engaging. So it means actually shifting our go-to frame of reference for how we engage people. And this speaks to young people, but really it speaks to anyone. If you build a persuasive product, people will buy it. Or in this case, people will participate in it. So the question is, what are the needs that are, are really pulling at young people? Or what are the interests that are pulling at them, right? Which is going to be different in every community. And what is the language through which we are communicating what we are and what we do? Right? And are we speaking to people in a way that's going to that's engage them? Everyone wants to be a part of something bigger. I think that every Jew, by and large, exists within a Jewish culture that tells them often that they don't know enough and aren't equipped enough to really own their Jewish experiences and walk in the doors in the first place. So the more that we can strip down barriers and strip down shoulds and strip down ought to's to get rid of all of the stumbling blocks that prevent people from participating, but actually give them access to the thing that they want, which is connection and meaning and understanding of their tradition, right? Young people, here's the kicker, right? Young people in this sense are emblematic of a larger issue. Everyone freaked out when the Pew study came out like five, six years ago, and the Jewish people were dying again. And of course we haven't died and our numbers are larger than ever before. And the fabric of Jewish life in North America is more vibrant and varied and diverse than ever before. But I think the most interesting thing about it, besides all of the false alarms that came from that study, was the question about individuals' pride in being Jewish. By and large, our community is very proud to be Jewish. And the younger you go on the genealogical scale and the generational scale, the more proud that generation is across the board of being Jewish. So you've got 96% of young people are proud to be Jewish. But I don't know any product that has user satisfaction at 96%. That's huge. That's huge. Young people are proud to be Jewish. So cultivate that and build off of that. 
and give them an opportunity to add substance to the pride that they already feel. And I, I think they flock to it. That's been my experience in my work. I think we can infuse we mood with that as well. Wonderful. So I think we have time for one more question. So I want to refer back to something that you said at the beginning of the interview. You said that you're excited about being part of the Jewish progress through history, which I thought was very interesting. So I wanted to ask you, how do you see Jewish history as part of understanding where we are in our modern moment? And how do you see Judaism changing or Jewish identity changing? I know it's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one. I, ho I hope we don't have a time limit because this may be the entire podcast now. Here's the deal. There's no word in Hebrew for history. The way we say history in Hebrew comes from the Greek, historia. What we know Jewishly is not history. We know zecher, memory. So there's a million beautiful divrei Torah we can say based on that fact alone of what that says about Jewish and what that says about Hebrew and what it says about what it means to be a Yid. The problem with it, though, is history happens in a book and memory is part of your identity. And so we are a people obsessed with our memories, which is good. That inspires who we are today. You can't be a Jew and not remember the experience of the Exodus when you sit at a Seder table, right? And, and how that impacts what you do today is transformative. But it often makes imagination of the future quite hard for us. And it makes us perpetually feel like we are living at the end of history. And that's what Jews are really good at. We have always thought that we were the last Jewish generation. And when you do that, the danger is you are in panic mode of trying to save yourself. But the radical suggestion I want to make is maybe the Jewish people don't need saving. I mean, look, we have dangers we face, serious ones today, dangers that we thought 10 years ago maybe we're gone from history. We faced them. But, but on a macro scale, I don't know that the Jewish people need saving. I think what we need is more dreaming, more dreaming of what we can be and, and what we can become and what we can add to this world. And, and so because of that, I can't answer your question about what we will be and what our future portends, but I know that we have to keep dreaming. Right? We have to keep coming together and talking and exploring ideas and, and being creative and, and thinking boldly. That's the excitement that brought me to Limud personally, but but you know, professionally, communally, what I hope for our people, that we can hold on to the greatness of what it means to be grounded in our memories of the past. That, that means we are a very grounded people, but free ourselves from the perpetual anxiety and fear that can leave us often stuck, unable to imagine tomorrow. That's the tension I hope we can live in. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. And keep up the good work in Seattle. The Seattle Lee Moodcast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Labicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, David Singer. Check out Lemood North America at their website, lemoodna.org.